Hey, bullers, you're listening to Bull After Bull, episode 16 on Friday, November 8th, 28th, 2014. <laughs> well, hey, everybody, it's the 28th. We're, we're recovering from our food coma yes. after Thanksgiving yesterday. Black Friday. Oh, Black Friday. Everyone loves it. We're here with uh, our good friend Aaron Mallon. Great to be here. And uh, we sort of want to talk a little bit about uh, Aaron's background and his work for Show Me Cannabis and his work for Reason. Uh, but most recently, you just kind of came back from Ferguson covering the situation there. So Yeah, I was over in Ferguson for uh, five days last week, this week and last week, um, writing for uh, Reason.com and Reason Magazine. They had me covering the events going on there. Um, and it was it was extremely interesting. Um, came back uh, quite cynical um, at the way the, uh, the the government handled that situation, and I think uh, there's a lot to be learned from. I can imagine. So, um, what do you, what do you think made you cynical the most about uh, the response? Or um, uh, well, you know, first and foremost, I'm not sure how it ends. Um, I think that there's a, a very legitimate um, uh, feeling that the system doesn't work uh, the same way for everybody. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how uh, how Mike Brown's family and friends are going to uh, go about seeking justice for his death, given that the system that was meant to do so uh, clearly didn't. Um, right. And you know, now that the, the grand jury testimony and all of the evidence has been released, um, I think it's becoming clear just how um, how far Bob McCullough went to try to protect Darren Wilson in, in that particular case. Mm. It is pretty crazy. Um I actually had a clip on uh, off of CNN of uh, Nancy Grace actually going off on the Darren Wilson thing, which uh, you know if, if if you can't even get Nancy Grace on your side as a as a cop, then things are looking pretty bleak, I would say. But uh, I just want to play a little bit of that. I just want to begin. There's a lot we can talk about. Was there? But was there any one thing you were waiting to hear from Officer Wilson that that he just didn't say? Yes. You know, when uh, people say it just doesn't add up, I'll tell you what doesn't add up, these photos, because I was expecting to see, and we've all seen them, I have looked at them, I have studied them, I was expecting to see his face mangled, and I, I hear what he's saying, that he was afraid, and this happened, and that happened, but I always go back to the beginning, and the beginning is this, <clears throat> you got an armed man and an unarmed man. The unarmed man is shot six to seven times. One of those may be a reentry. That's why it may say it may be six. Six to seven times. He unloaded many, many more bullets. Why? He doesn't even have a bruise. Right? It's red. He's got a red mark. I, I, I don't see it. And another thing, when he says, it all happened so fast I couldn't think, then later says, I paused and thought, can I legally shoot him? Listen, that doesn't add up. There's so many things that he don't says add he didn't up. have other options. That that's from the from the mouth of Officer Wilson. Look, do you know how many times I've ever sided against a cop? Never. Hmm. But uh, it, to me, this is bigger than a badge, and I don't like speaking out against a cop. But this doesn't add up. And another thing. Grand mm -hmm. jury. I have presented to grand jury so many times, I can't even count them. On a single day, we would present 
75 to 150 cases to a grand jury, and we would do that two times a week when I had grand jury duty. I feel that the district attorney, as much as I respect him in other ways, used the grand jury to do what he wanted them to do as his tool. He didn't want to drop it. He presented it in such a way that this grand jury would not bring charges, and I don't like yeah. that. I know a lot of people agree with you, and let me just, just let me tap into your knowledge just as a prosecutor, because you hear this from Ben Crump and then the, the team uh, on the Michael Brown side saying they were frustrated. They felt like, you know, the, these, um, the testimony of the grand jury, i.e. the testimony from Officer Wilson, especially when he likened himself to a five-year-old and felt like Michael Brown, you know, like Hulk Hogan, was coming at him and that his, his credibility and his testimony wasn't, wasn't challenged. Is it you that prosecutors, if they want... An indictment. They will get an indictment. When I went to a grand jury, I went to the grand jury on each case because I believed the offense had been committed and I had the right guy or the police mm. had the right guy. And I went in there to present them our evidence. If I didn't think there was a case, I would never have gone to the grand jury. You don't mm. use the grand jury to achieve your personal gain, to achieve what you want them to do. You go in to get a true verdict. So Nancy there clearly uh, hammered on the fact that it doesn't add up that a lot of the testimony that he even gave contradicted uh, itself. And uh, when I talk to people familiar with like the legal side, people like private investigators or uh, prosecutors and attorneys, they're all really like, I mean, I think the take home message for people looking at this case was grand juries hardly ever fail to indict because just just because of why you put a grand jury together. So the purpose of a grand jury exists to look through your evidence and see if, you know, you have at least enough to bring it to trial, not to determine guilt or innocence. Sure, you know, there were so many things about this particular grand jury that were just um, unconventional or even unprecedented. Um, I mean, the first thing I want to mention is that you had, uh, you know, 18 witnesses who testified who saw... Uh, the final shots being fired. We saw Michael Brown when the final shots were being fired. With 16 of those 18 witnesses saying his hands were up when those final shots were fired. Two saying his hands weren't up when those shots were fired. Uh, before this evidence was presented, and right before Darren Wilson testified, uh, the assistant prosecutor provided uh, the grand jury with a copy of Missouri's uh, statute on uh, officer use of deadly force. The problem is that statute uh, was ruled unconstitutional and 1984 case, Tennessee v. Gardner. Okay. Um, so the, the, the prosecutor provided that, test, uh, that that law, handed it out. Um, the grand jury heard Darren Wilson's testimony and several more days of testimony uh, under the impression that uh, police officers legally can shoot a fleeing felon if it is necessary to stop them. The Supreme Court said, no, it's not justifiable to use deadly force to stop a fleeing felon unless they pose a threat to you or somebody else. Um, so, you know, the, the, the threshold was essentially lowered uh, by the assistant prosecutor by handing that to the grand jury. On the very, very uh, last day of the grand jury, right near the end, um, the prosecutor said something to the effect of, you know that statute I gave you, you know, don't give that too much weight. Um, you know, you can kind of ignore that uh, or something to that effect, effectively trying to muddy the waters. Somebody on the grand jury actually asked, you know, was it ruled unconstitutional in, in that Supreme Court case in the 80s? Um, and the assistant prosecutor said something to the effect of, don't, don't worry about it, we don't want to get into a law class. Um, he is effectively leaving the grand jury with the impression that, you know, the law maybe was or wasn't unconstitutional. Um, the, the clear answer was yes. Uh, the court case was extremely clear. 
Um, it's not justifiable. It is cruel and unusual to, to shoot or execute somebody uh, simply for, for the fact that they committed a felony and are fleeing. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, possession of 35 grams of marijuana in the right. state of Missouri is a felony. Um, I think it would be hard to imagine uh, somebody who would find it reasonable to shoot somebody simply because they were fleeing. Right. Uh, you know, somebody with, with 35 grams of marijuana. So, yeah, all kinds of things in this case were just unconventional or even unprecedented, providing all the evidence, um, you know, providing bad, bad case law. Right. Um, the way that the questions from the prosecutor were just extraordinarily leading. And then, of course, you had pages and pages of testimony about, uh, about marijuana and about mm-hmm. whether marijuana uh, caused Michael Brown to go into a, a demon-like trance, which, of course, is just one of the most racist uh, origins of the drug war. I, um, I was really surprised at how many times I saw the word demon in news coverage. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's astounding that we're still ta- that we're still talking this way about people, about humans. Like, and you, you had I believe Jeff Rorda came out after uh, Kajimi Powell was was killed and uh, said that he was uh, no angel. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with his parents watching. Um, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I believe that was this Dorian Johnson. He, he said that after the shooting of Dorian Johnson. Um, maybe perhaps I have my, my names confused, but, um, yeah, you know, so many things about this just were absolutely unconventional and there were pages and pages of discussion of, of, um, marijuana use, you know, whether he used marijuana regularly, how much would have been in his blood regularly. Um, some of the questions from the prosecutor were beyond unprofessional and silly, uh, to, to medical examiners and toxicologists. And then you also had this kind of bizarre discussion about waxing. Um, is, is the term they used for uh, the, the consumption of concentrates or other marijuana oils. And, okay. um, waxing is the term they use repeatedly. Uh, that's not a term I've ever actually heard. Yeah, me mm. um, but that's the, the term used by the assistant prosecutor and everybody else. There's um, some speculation that I guess the construction workers who uh, witnessed the, the shooting, the ones who were seen on tape, is saying, why'd you shoot him? He had his hands up. I'm not sure if you saw that or not. Two white construction workers from out of town. Um Apparently or allegedly, according to some of this this testimony in the grand jury, uh, had mentioned to Michael Brown before he was shot that he should perhaps try waxing is the term that they used or uh, use waxing um, as a way to, to smoke the marijuana he apparently had in his possession at the time. Okay. Um, and, you know, this is like such a silly, silly sidebar, but it took up pages and pages of uh, testimony uh, to the grand jury. There's just a ridiculous amount of discussion about, you know, how consumption of waxing marijuana um, can lead to hallucinations. And even if, if he didn't use waxing, it, the, the hallucinations could have led him into this demonic uh, trance, which is why he oh persisted through this barrage of bullets from oh, you know, the first six no. or seven shots from Officer Wilson's gun. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the whole thing is, of course, just extraordinarily, extraordinarily racist, um, as is the, the, the foundation of the drug war. And, and these are the same, the exact same uh, racist stereotypes that... that, that that are in play in both cases. For sure. So, how do you think, um, you told me a little bit last night when we were having dinner, when we were having Thanksgiving about, uh, the policing, but tell me a little bit more about, like, the policing tactics you saw and sort of, like, where the response was aimed, uh, after the announcement was made. Sure. So, while I was in Ferguson, I was there, uh, two days before the non-indictment was announced, and then the day of the announcement, and then two days after. Um, and it was, you know, there was... In every case, a large group of peaceful protesters, um, or mostly peaceful protesters, who were very angry and very loud. In most cases, there were multiple groups of very loud, angry protesters. Um, and then you had kind of smaller pockets of, um, of, of really kind of serious uh, criminals. 
who were running around a couple blocks behind the police line, uh, looting stores, shooting off, off firearms, burning police cars, etc. Um, and in a lot of these cases, you had the massive police response come out and form a police line in riot gear uh, up against these groups of mostly peaceful protesters. You had your your idiot in the back who was throwing a water bottle at the, the line of cops in riot gear and things to that effect. Sure. Um, but it was nothing like what was going on one block behind the police officers, just right behind their backs and two blocks behind their backs. I mean, it seemed very clear to me that, you know, that it was they much preferred to deal with the large group of peaceful protesters than to confront the rather dangerous um, looters and, and, and people with firearms who were running around in cases, you know, one and two blocks right behind uh, the backs of the riot cops who were lined up against the peaceful protesters. Uh, the police cars that burned were um, less than, one of the first one was less than a block from the police station and the fire station. It's the same, the same complex. And sure. So, uh, the police or the fire department or the National Guard literally could have walked a fire hose down the street from the fire station uh, and extinguished his police car. Um, and, you know, I think that it, it was probably not a coincidence that there were older model police cars that were just abandoned uh, right, right behind the backs of the police um, in places where, you know, they could be set on fire in the exact, uh, the exact um, optics that the police wanted uh, were achieved. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it did seem very clear that the police were ignoring the criminals a block and two blocks behind their backs, right behind their backs, to instead shoot tear gas at that mm. predominantly peaceful protesters. So, um, I kind of been thinking about this myself, and, you know, we haven't really talked about the, the whole Ferguson situation on the show, but, I mean, initially, always my initial reaction is just, like, anger at the police and at the government in general, and, you know, sort of this feeling of helplessness of, you know, like you saying, the, the two-tier justice system where, um, if you're in one category of privilege and power, then it goes one way versus, you know, if you're disenfranchised, it goes another way. And law is not applying to, you know, the privileged elites. But really, this has to come down to us forming a better working relationship with police eventually. Like, we have to repair this uh, rift between us. And I don't, I mean, where does that start? It has to start with better laws because, um, you know, you get the white splaining all the time when you bring this up in conversation with friends, and the the first thing that you always hear is that not all cops are bad. You know, that's like something that I've just heard at least twice a day, every day. You right. Know? right. And and you you have to realize that when there's laws on the books that codify racism, that s- systemically prop up racism, then yes, all cops are employed to enforce those laws. And yes, all cops have these faults. Like, yes, every cop is going to have to enforce our racist drug racist drug laws, you know? I really think the problem starts with the academy. Um, I think that this is kind of an issue of, of police culture, um, you know, because you have people with great intentions and people who are just looking for a power trip who, who go into the academy. Um, but they, they both come out the same way. They both come out understanding exactly what the incentive structure is in modern policing. Um, and it's skewed away from uh, personal accountability of police officers for right. their own conduct um, and toward uh, a deference of power toward police unions and also um, toward practices that, that are financially beneficial to the police department, like asset forfeiture. Um, and there's really a, a culture of 
um, of violence in American policing that is really not present in other countries in terms of the number of police shootings, in terms of the amount of times that, uh, that shots are fired, in terms of the, the amount of force that is normally employed. Um, it, it's not typical in other countries, for example, for a, a mentally ill, knife-wielding man uh, to be shot within 25 seconds of, of police arriving on scene, uh, which is what happened uh, in, in the St. Louis area a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not standard practice, and, and the incentives are, are, are entirely skewed. I think that one of the first things we have to do legislatively is create a moral hazard for police. Right now, there's absolutely nothing um, that, that's going to happen to a police officer who, who does wrong, who right. um, you know abuses their power, um, or, or in some way uh, engages in corruption or, or, or anything else. Um, you know, there's no personal liability essentially for police officers. And so, one way that's been su- suggested to create that moral hazard um, is to uh, require individual officers to carry personal liability insurance. That way, instead of you know lawsuits against entire police departments coming back on the backs of taxpayers, right. they come back to the officer. And so the officer, obviously, is never going to be able to pay out millions of dollars if they, you know, beat the crap out of somebody. Right. That's what the insurance policy is for. But officers who have patterns and practices of, of abuse, of excessive force, are going to see much higher insurance premiums on that personal liability insurance. That makes sense. Sure. Uh, I think one way to create that moral hazard or, or, or to, to, at least, um, to at least generate some kind of moral culpability there uh, is, to, is to, to require all officers to carry personal liability insurance. Because it also really isn't fair that taxpayers are held accountable for the horrendous conduct of police officers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Lauren, you had talked about uh, police training kind of changing over time, right? Uh, and talking with your dad. Yeah, so my father was in the FBI um, in Boston and Denver. He traveled all over. And he was, he's been pretty conflicted about the Ferguson issue. Um, but he was saying that he was trained to shoot till, and shoot to kill, basically. Uh, you shoot until the subject is neutral, neutralized. So, I mean, I thought that was really terrifying. Um, and I mean, if that's what cops are being trained with too, essentially, you know? Um... To me, it just seems like, like you're saying, Aaron, the the money is in the wrong place right now, and the motives are in the wrong place. Like the there's less likely of a suit to be filed if the person is dead. You know, they you know they have no voice, so they're they're not a witness. They can't testify, and um, you can get a wrongful death suit, but that's it. You can't set up medical expenses or any kind of ongoing thing for someone who survived, like you can for someone who survived. And officers have such incredible immunity that you're almost never going to succeed with a wrongful death suit against Officer X. You're going to succeed with a wrongful death death suit against the city of X. Sure. Mm -hmm. And Officer X is not going to pay for that. The taxpayers of city X are going to pay for that. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. So, uh, tell tell me how you uh, scored the the writing gig with Reason and how that all came about. Uh, so Reason, um, a while back, picked up some of my research for Show Me Cannabis. I'd been doing research for them for quite some time, um, and I'd been publishing some uh, short research articles on the Show Me Cannabis website relating to some of the more ridiculous task force conduct in Missouri in terms of the drug task forces we have here. And uh, they took notice and started writing about some of my research and eventually asked me to write uh, original pieces for them. Very nice. So, um, 
What what are some of those more ridiculous uh, drug task forces we have in Missouri? So Missouri has 20, uh, 27 drug task forces, um, and they have uh, unprecedented power um, and an unprecedented lack of oversight. And they operate on a, a regional or geographic basis. Generally, you have three or four counties that you know get together. Sometimes it's uh, local police departments within one county. Sometimes it's as many as 12 counties. But you, the idea is you have a multi-jurisdictional unit that can receive grant funding from the state. Uh, the problem is that money doesn't really come with any strings. It's more or less passed down as a lump sum from the feds to the state and then from the state to the task force. Uh, and they basically can spend that money however they want. Uh, there's, there's really almost no limitations. They're told, you know, here's a quarter million dollars, go fight the war on drugs. Um, and that's the extent of, of the instruction in many cases. Uh, and so you have task forces who don't make very many arrests or who don't seem to be doing much of anything. You have task forces that are... Uh, you know, arresting people for marijuana possession, not, you know, marijuana sale. Um, they couldn't even get them on marijuana sale. You have some task forces that make more marijuana possession arrests than all the other arrests they make. It's about eight task forces make more marijuana arrests than the other, uh, than any other drug. Wow. Um, you have, you know, priorities that are, that are completely askew. Uh, you have rampant asset forfeiture, uh, abuse and, and misuse. I came across a task force just a couple days ago. Uh, that actually tried to use or, or, or did use asset forfeiture money to buy their new uh, their, their uh, task force members' new dress suits for court. Oh, uh, my goodness. Um, we've got task forces that uh, completely flat-out deny their existence. They're essentially black ops task forces that think that, you know, they're, they're secret CIA agencies or, or something, and they don't have to acknowledge their existence when you... Uh, call their publicly listed number and ask to file a sunshine request. Um, you've got task forces that uh, don't keep any of the basic records that they're supposed to keep or don't even have a, a governing body or board in existence as the, as the state law requires. Um, but, you know, once you get that money, there's really nothing that you, you can't do with it, and there's really almost no accountability. The state does basically no no checkup on, uh, on how you spent it. You have to submit some basic data to the state saying, you know, here's what we did, here's what we didn't do. It's extremely vague. Um, and also, even when the data is uh, horrendous, um, nothing happens. There's, there's no consequence. So, you know, you're, you're submitting this data um, in the idea that maybe it's a check, but, you know, nothing has ever happened, even to these absolute worst task forces. Um, so can you explain the process of how you get most of this data? Sure. So I filed, uh, in the last couple of years of research, uh, a number of Sunshine Law requests, open records requests under Missouri law. Um, I've probably filed several hundred of them in, in the last couple of years. But, uh, there are a process by which anybody can obtain uh, information or open records in the state of Missouri. Uh, the Sunshine Law is basically the, the law that governs how you go about getting those that information. Um, and the, the default position of any document possessed by the state or any state agency is that it's an open record. Records, you know, that the taxpayers pay for, uh, the taxpayers are supposed to have access to. That's kind of the idea of the law. Sure. Um, and so, you know, that, that principle has exceptions for... Uh, confidential information for secrecy uh, of, of uh, that, that relates to uh, the safety of, of confidential um, informants and, and undercover officers and things like that. And there's all kinds of exceptions. But the default position is that documents the taxpayers pay to create should be open to the taxpayers. Sure. Uh, and so these drug task forces and these sheriff's departments and these police departments and the highway patrol uh, and, uh, you know, these agencies, the Department of Public Safety, are all subject to the Sunshine Law. And so you can file a, a, a records request for any document that these agencies have. And in some cases, they're going to redact pieces of that information. Um, in some cases, they're going to refuse to give it to you, and you have to fight or push back a little bit. 
Um, but, but the premise is that any document possessed by your local police department, uh, you have a right to see. You have a right to have a copy of that document. Um, again, with the exceptions listed in, in Chapter 610 of the, the state statute. Uh, but for the most part, you have access to information or, or documents kept by your local authorities. And so uh, your job basically is show me cannabis, uh, your director of research, right? Yeah. And so your job entails sort of using that leverage and using those laws to gain data to do your research. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the more impor important work that you've uncovered? Sure. So I guess my, my goal is really to figure out exactly how narcotics laws are enforced in Missouri um, and, and what that looks like. Because, you know, the voters in Missouri are going to have a choice in, in 2016 as to whether or not they want to continue uh, the, the, way, the, the war on drugs and the way that that war on drugs is fought. Uh, or whether they want to choose a new approach, a new, a new strategy to, to dealing with drugs in society. Um, and so part of that is making sure people are well aware of what the war on drugs looks like in the status quo. And I think that a lot of people uh, really just have no idea um, how, how nuts it is and how violent it is and how, uh, how horrible it is for, for a lot of people. Sure. Um, particularly, well, innocent and guilty people who kind of get caught up in, in the wake or the crossfire. Um, you know, several years back, uh, a few years back, we had uh, a raid for marijuana in Columbia, Missouri uh, that took place um, just a, a couple blocks from here. Um, and it was, uh, the, the, the police videotaped the raid, um, and the local police department actually ended up getting a copy of the video from a, a sunshine request, an open records request. And in this particular raid, they, uh, there's children in the house, there's a, a wife in the house, um, and there's a man in the house, and there's two dogs. And the police go in under the cover of darkness, bust the door in, shoot the dogs right in front of the kid and the wife, um, take the man into custody for uh, possession of marijuana. They later release him, write him a ticket because marijuana is decriminalized in Columbia. He right. didn't even have enough on him to uh, trigger anything above uh, a citation of traffic. Uh, and the only thing, you know, people saw that video and they were, they were stunned that, you know, for, for a small bag of marijuana, uh, police would be willing to go into a house with women and children with automatic weapons pointed up in the air, you know, horrible weapon safety demonstrated, uh, no regard for human life, no regard for animal life, shoot the dogs in front of the kids. Horrible, horrible scene. Right. People were stunned when they saw the video, and they, uh, they really thought that that was the exception to the rule, you know, that possibly, can't possibly be the way that things went down. Right. The only thing that was different about that particular raid is that it was videotaped. Yep. That is standard operating procedure for, for narcotics raids. In fact, now um, you've got entire police departments, the St. Louis County Police Department, and I believe the Columbia Police Department, both, always a standard procedure, now use a SWAT team on every single search warrant, on every single raid they, they conduct. Um, that, that didn't used to be how it was, right? Normally for a, a narcotics raid, you had five guys in windbreakers with pistols on, the, on their hips. Right. Uh, you didn't have this situation where you had a SWAT team of eight or 12 people with automatic weapons pointed at everybody in the house, shooting anything that moves, coming in to find drugs. Right. Uh, you reserved your SWAT team for situations where you knew there was somebody barricaded in a house with a gun planted back at, the, at your guys. Right. Um, and so this has been, you know, part of a, a police culture shift that came with the war on drugs. Um, and it's, it's part of this police culture that I'm talking about in terms of just there being this predisposition toward violence as opposed to community policing and, and passive police approaches. Um, you can also really compare it with other countries. Uh, this is just not a culture that's, that's present in other countries. American police culture is notoriously violent. And, uh, these raids are, are a big part of that, and uh, they're also they're a recent product of the drug war. It didn't always use police. For sure. Well, I remember that, that SWAT raid. 
clearly. I mean, that's uh, that was the incident that got me into the activist scene here locally. And you know, I had been like, I'd been to a few normal meetings, but after seeing that, it was just like, wait a second, this is this is the war. Like, uh, we it, it's such a shadowy shadowy war that you don't really see. You know, it, it happens in your neighborhoods every day, and yet like. Until that point, no one had really, it hadn't been publicly shown, like, you know, this is how the drug war goes down. And, you know, they called it the SWAT raid heard around the world because it, it, it was, you know, it was seen and viewed by millions of people everywhere, all, all over the world. And still today, I think a lot of people bought the police lie that's not standard operating procedure, and so a lot right. of what I'm trying to do is to show that it is, you know. Mm-hmm. These, these task forces carry out every single one of their raids. Uh, with uh, violence, with, with, with unnecessary violence. Um, and, uh, you know, people should be aware of that, uh, and they should let their legislators know, uh, legislators know that that's, uh, that's not an acceptable outcome. Um, so I remember when Columbia Police Department bought their armored vehicle, the Bearcat, and I know that they used some uh, equitable sharing funds that they had received. Um, when you were in Ferguson, did you see a lot of armored vehicles? Is this like a, this is a pretty standard thing for police departments now, right, to have these armored vehicles? Yeah, the St. Louis County Police Department uh, has a number of, of large tactical trucks. Um, they're, they're much bigger than the ones Columbia had, and they have several more of them. The St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department also has, I believe, tactical vehicles that I saw as well. Um, and then, of course, when I was there, uh, near the end, at least, the, the last couple of days I was there, the National Guard was out in full force. And so they had their, you know, um, their, their military vehicles. But yeah, the St. Louis County Police, uh, the St. Louis Metropolitan Police, they both have uh, a number of large, very large traffic trucks. One of the ones that I saw and, and kind of photographed from a distance, uh, I mean, it's, it must have been uh, 30 or 35 feet long. It had a, um, what, what must have been a battering ram kind of on a ladder on the top of it, um, sitting on the top of it uh, as though it were, you know, to be used for hostage rescue. Uh, and they used it to, to hide behind the shot tear gas and diesel protesters. Goodness. That's, uh, I mean, it's just mind-blowing how powerless you are as citizens, especially when it comes to that martial law point where, you know, people walk out into the streets and it's like an us versus them scenario, and you're talking about people in, in hoodies with water bottles versus people in full riot gear, bulletproof everything, uh, automatic weapons. I mean, it, the the pictures going around the internet now are like of side by side riot cops and cops in Iraq and the, or in you know in military in Iraq, but the cops here are even more decked out you yeah, know, than the I'm, military guys overseas. I've talked to veterans who said they took Fallujah with less body armor than than the police are are uh, wearing in Ferguson. That's yeah. so crazy. Uh, and you know if if the police were using their armored tanks to confront the looters and and, and people. Um, breaking into stores right behind their backs, that would be one thing. But these, these vehicles were used on the large, you know, mobs. And, you know, mobs is the wrong word because they were largely peaceful. But the large swarm, swarms of people right. um, who, were, who were very loud and who were occasionally throwing things and who were making a lot of noise and, and stomping their feet and chanting. But sure. um, they, they weren't carrying firearms. They weren't looting. And right. they, they weren't breaking into stores. Um, and so, you know, it almost seemed as though the police were afraid to deal with the real criminals, you know, looting and, and carrying guns right behind their back because it was easier to deal with the, right. the protesters and shooting with tear gas. Um, but if they were using their, 
their armored trucks to go secure stores with eight armed men in them. That would be one thing. Sure. Um, if they sent their, you know, their uh, their automatic weapon uh, carrying officers into the Walgreens where there was looting taking place, that would be one thing. But to send them out into the streets to confront a, a swarm of, of largely peaceful protesters and the, the, the violent protesters in that crowd, if you could call them that, are throwing water bottles right. um, at riot shields. Um, I mean, it's it's just, you know, there's just no comparison. Well, it's crazy, too, because uh, you talk about comparison to other countries, and when Ukraine had its unrest and there were riots at the, you know, buildings of parliament and everything, you saw the protest, I mean, there's not an armed response from them. They're just cops, like, pretty much hiding with a baton and a, and a shield, and and the crowd overwhelmed them and took away their baton and their shield and just pretty much pulled the cops out of the room, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just crazy to see, like, riot response in the United States versus everywhere else. And, and it would be one thing to, to deploy, you know, full-scale riot response to a riot, um, but this we're talking about a response that was used on peaceful protesters from day one, from, right. from August. Um, you know, they deployed full-scale riot gear to deal with. Uh, on, on the, the second day, a memorial, they deployed, you know, their, their riot squad to deal with uh, mm-hmm. a candlelight vigil for Michael Brown on, on August 10th, I believe. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to say that there's never a role for these things, right. but the idea that we're using them on a regular basis to serve search warrants, Absolutely. for narcotics, and, and for crowd control um, in situations where there is not, there's not violence is, 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 is ridiculous. Well, it's also hard to take a government seriously who begs protesters to remain calm and stay calm and not get violent and then shows that kind of a flex of force in your face. It's like, it's almost like a huge muscular dude at the gym going up to like a skinny twerp and like slapping him on the face and saying, what, you know, don't fight me, don't fight me. Oh, sure. There's no, there were a, a ton of police officers, like a disgusting number of them who were clearly getting off on, on the power. Um, like, like, I don't even know if they were a minority. There was a huge proportion of them who were just really enjoying it. And yeah, who were clearly enjoying antagonizing protesters to see if they could get a response out of them. Um, on a smaller level, you have the cops just, you know, yelling back and, and kind of making faces and um, insulting the protesters, and in some cases making very racially charged insults to the protesters. And then you also had, kind of, uh, on a broader level, I noticed that, um, you know, in one particular standoff at the police station in Ferguson, you had the riot cops on one side of the street, you had the protesters on the other, um, and just to get everybody fired up, you had the National Guard driving trucks right between the two of them uh, every couple of minutes just for the sake of it. Um, you know, this is a road that's accessible from, from all directions, multiple side streets in every possible direction. Um, it was clear, you know, after standing there for, for several hours, uh, even just several minutes, that they were doing it deliberately to antagonize the crowd. And even if they weren't, it was so obvious that it was antagonizing everybody there. Um, you know, even if it was a mistake originally, it sure wasn't a mistake to continue with it because it was so clearly uh, just, you know, just and, agitating and, 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 right, and, and educating everybody there to see uh, National Guard trucks driving down the street to deal with what they felt was a peaceful protest. And, and, and for the, those people there, uh, it was. So um, I think they felt those resources were being targeted at them, not violent folks. And uh, lo and behold, they were right. So uh, for, the, for the average listener out there, um, we see how bad things are. We see, um, you know, possibly these are just signs that of a system that's been getting sicker for a while. What do you think kind of is the take-home call to, res- uh, call to response for all of this? What is the call to action? What is 
what is it that uh, just the average person can do to help all of this instead of being a part of it and feeding it? Uh, I mean, I think that folks in a position of privilege, um, whether it be uh, financial affluence or, or, or skin color, um, have the ability to write injustices um, when they take place. Um, you know, if you see uh, white cops harassing black folks, uh, they're a lot less likely to do that if, if another white folk walks over, you know. Uh, and really there are just kind of little things that can be done to counter uh, injustices that we don't have to let fly, you know, every day, um, be they by, by police or others. Um, and the same is true of, of, of police brutality and, and police abuse. Um, if you see uh, the police dealing with somebody and it doesn't feel right, uh, take out your camera and, and record that interaction. You know, the odds are it, it might be beneficial in the end. Um, I, I, multiple times I've, I've driven by interactions and thought to myself I didn't feel right and later figured out, damn, I should have really recorded that because something clearly went down there. Um, you know, so if something doesn't feel right, you know, take out your camera. You always have the right to record police from a, a distance as long as you're not in the field. Um, and also writing just smaller injustices as they occur. Um, in terms of larger legislative fixes, I think there are going to have to be laws that are passed to deal with these kinds of problems. For sure. uh, absolutely, I support uh, body cam mandates, um, but they have to come with a couple of different uh, requirements. They have to be on. Uh, they have to not be turned on by the officer or at the officer's discretion, otherwise right. it will never end up with anything useful. And there should also be a, a, a presumption law, uh, meaning if there should be video of an event and there isn't, uh, the presumption is that uh, the officer committed, committed the act of wrongdoing. Um, you had the example, for example, in 2009, uh, the gentleman in the Ferguson jail who was beat senseless um, by, you know, four white police officers who was African-American, Henry Davis Jr., right. uh, and was charged with bleeding on their uniforms. Mm -hmm. Well, the, you know, the jail had security cameras, and of course, by, by an act of magic, there was no video of this particular incident. Right. Um, so it's important, you know, if, if, if there are, if there's supposed to be video of something and there isn't, the presumption should be... Uh, against the police officer who was in control of the video and who sure. created the scenario. Not to say that that presumption can't be overcome if, you know, there are other eyewitnesses and all the evidence is in, you know, goes the other direction by all right. means that presumption could be overcome. But that presumption should should be against the police if, if there should be video of an incident and because of their actions. Right. Well, and, you know, that also kind of gets rid of the incentive to ditch the video, too. Sure, sure. Which is really important. And, you know, you talking about incentives, it is also really important that, that police officers are personally held accountable for the misconduct. Right. And in the status quo, they aren't. There's no, no between. I, I am generally a fan of unions, even public sector unions, um, but police unions have not, have not been a force for good. Right. Um, they've protected bad cops at the expense of American policing and police culture. Um, police unions tend to perpetuate this, this really awful culture of violence within American policing. Um, and they tend to make reform uh, almost impossible. They, they really tend to fight against best practice and um, and for the convenience and, uh, of their officers. Right. Um, and, you know, I want to say that I'm also, I'm completely supportive of raising the pay for, for police officers. I'm supportive of doubling the pay for police officers. Um, and I'm also supportive of, of doubling, essentially, the requirements to be a police officer. Sure. Um, you know, raise the pay. It's absolutely true that we ask police to do a really hard job and we don't pay them very much. Um, but that's no excuse to do it poorly. Right. Uh, let's pay them more um, and expect more. Um, you know, raise the, the, the quality of, of, of the policing that we have. You know, it's just like any other market situation. If you, uh, if you can pay more for a service, you're going to get a higher quality service. So, uh, a part of this is absolutely raising the pay of police officers because then we have more leverage to kind of demand more and expect more from them. Um, and also, you know, with that, it, it becomes a little bit easier to swallow things like personal liability insurance and body cams and things like that, 
Um, you know, it's one thing to subject yourselves to some of those things for $30,000 a year, but more people would be willing to do something for $60,000. You know, if we really for are sure. asking police to do a hard job and do it correctly, um, I, I, I see no reason not to, to, to compensate them accordingly. Yeah, that, that definitely seems reasonable. Um, going back to the body cam issue, uh, just to play devil's advocate, I remember back in the... Uh, when Show Me Cannabis had the seminar a couple weekends ago in St. Louis, uh, uh, I believe it was Gary Wigert who said um, that he didn't like the idea of body cams, and his reason behind it was that uh, it would take away officer discretion in a case of, say, an officer finds a misdemeanor amount of weed on a kid, then, you know, right now he has the discretion to take him home to his parents and just, be, and you know, dispose of the weed and say, look, kid, straighten up. Whereas if there was a body cam, there would need to be a citation and need to be a charge made out of that interaction because it's all on tape. Sure. Well, you know, I think that um, police have too much discretion. I, I don't think that's a good thing. I think that we should uh, craft laws to the point where they are what we want them to be. Uh, marijuana should be legal. It shouldn't be something that results in any criminal offense. Um, and if you break another law, uh, the police should have generally less discretion to enforce that law. And instead of asking police not to enforce laws that we think are bad and to give them discretion to, you know, not enforce bad laws, uh, let's change the bad laws and have police enforce, you know, the laws as we want them. Sure. Uh, you know, maybe not, you know, extraordinarily strictly, but but certainly with less discretion than they have now. Um, and part of the, the, the problem with police culture is the amount of discretion that they have. There's, sure. Um, that, that limits accountability and it, it limits... Um, you know, there's really not a, a standard operating procedure for a lot of these uh, scenarios, and, and, and frankly, there, there should be. Um, you know, instead of allowing officers to uh, encounter people who are, are doing the same thing and handle those situations vastly differently, they should be handled the same by police. Uh, judicial discretion is another matter. You know, you get them before a judge, you get a prosecutor and a defense attorney who can provide important context about what happened, and then a, just, a judge, you know, exercises that discretion. But, uh, the police officers should not be the ones to exercise that discretion for the most part. Um, I, I'm certainly not not saying that we should remove all discretion from that, that line of employment, but there should be a lot less than there is now. And uh, sure. instead of asking police to ignore bad laws, we should just change them to what we want them to enforce. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. So um, I wanted to wrap up with talking sort of about the Sunshine Law specifically and how you would go about um, getting information. Uh, so the, 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 the Sunshine requests are under Missouri law specifically. And um, how do you initiate one? Uh, how do you know what info you want to get? And then, you know, I guess break us down through the process of uh, uh, what you do in response to getting information, what you do when you get a response uh, denying you information, and sort of how far you can take it to... Uh, make sure that they respond to your request. Sure. So uh, the Attorney General of Missouri has on, on their website a very good uh, set of resources for filing sunshine requests. They have a template that I recommend using. Okay. Um, but really, you don't have to use any particular template. template. The law is written in a very liberal way. Um, basically, if you ask a state agency for a copy of a document uh, and they can understand what you were asking for, uh, they're supposed to give you that copy of that document. Um, you know, there's really no format that you have to follow. Uh, the law specifically um, says that there doesn't have to be in any one particular format, actually. Um, but as long as the request is clear and, and makes it to the appropriate custodian of records of that agency, the person who maintains the records for that organization, um, they're, they're going to be 
generally we're required to respond to that. Um, and I'll qualify this by saying that you know, I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice, it's just the, the experiences that I've had. But, um, you know, in most cases, you, you either use the template or just, you know, say, hey, my name, this is my name, this is the document that I'm requesting, um, these are the dates that I would like that document from. So, for example, drug task forces have uh, quarterly status reports they file with, with certain data. And if I'm asking for those, I'll ask for, you know, all quarterly status reports that your task force filed in the year 2013. Um, and, you know, whether I use the template or not, um, if, if they get that request, they're generally required to respond to it within uh, three business days. Um, an agency can get back to you within three business days and say, hey, you asked for a lot of documents, it's going to take us a longer time to get that to you, um, but within three days you should, under state law, receive a response. Uh, and then they can ask, also charge you for um, the time it takes them to collect the rest of the records, but they're required to use the cheapest possible employee in their office, and they can also charge you 10 cents per page of, of documents. So um, basically they can make you reimburse them for the cost, but they can't charge you to make, to make a profit or anything like that. Okay. Uh, they can just ask you to reimburse them for the cost of, of those records. Uh, and if those records are going to be used in the public interest and are not for commercial use, you can also uh, add that to your request and ask that the fees be waived. Sometimes I have some luck with that, most of the time I don't. But regardless, the, the fees generally should be relatively low because there's just not that much of a justification for, for charging much more than the actual uh, time required to compile the records and, and you know, the paper and the ink to print the, the copies. Right. You know, if you don't get a response within three days, you have a couple of different uh, courses of, of remedy. Obviously, you can follow up and just ask if they got your request. Uh, sometimes a non-response is, is, um, is, is, is just ignorance or, or, or um, incompetence, not necessarily... Uh, a deliberate uh, lack of response. Sure. Um, but you, know, you can follow up with them directly. Uh, then the next kind of step is to file a complaint with the uh, Sunshine Unit and the Attorney General's Office. Um, they have a fairly simple, informal complaint process where you, you send them a complaint and they investigate and follow up and uh, try to see if they can enforce the law um, on, on their own. Um, and then the third option is to actually litigate, to file a civil lawsuit in uh, the, the circuit court where the governmental body resides, uh, and you can do that um, if you feel that the agency hasn't followed the law. You can do that with or without an attorney. I filed one of those cases on my own uh, pro se, meaning without an attorney. Um, we, we expect it to go very well. Uh, we filed it uh, a couple of months ago against the Missouri Narcotic Officers Association after they ignored about a half dozen requests over uh, six months or so. Very nice. So, um, uh, what uh, what projects do you see on the horizon that you're using the ACE data for? What's some uh, things that you have upcoming? Sure. So, we really want to keep an eye on um, these drug task forces and make Missourians aware of exactly how these laws are being enforced. Uh, you know, the, I think most most folks, including legislators, just have no idea um, how this you know four million dollars is spent by these task forces every year. Definitely. They're pretty appalled when they find that. Um, so continuing to kind of try to establish some sense of accountability over these task forces is really important. Uh, and then one of the other things that we're watching really closely are um, some of these taxpayer-funded community prevention groups um, that have a, a tendency to use taxpayer money um, to uh, campaign or lobby illegally against uh, ballot initiatives, specifically legalization initiatives. Uh, we're going to be keeping a really close eye on them as well. Uh, to make sure that there isn't illegal conduct going on 
um, in Missouri. There was some in 2004 in regards to Missouri, in regards to Columbia's uh, decriminalization ordinance. Uh, the Missouri Association of Community Task Forces was actually fined by the Missouri Ethics Commission back in 2004. They then um, started calling themselves Act Missouri and have been uh, doing similar things ever since. Mm -hmm. um, you've also got uh, out in Oregon, you had um, Kevin Sabet's crew essentially uh, trying to use taxpayer-funded uh, resources to, to bring Kevin Sabet to town to do an anti-legalization tour, um, and, and that was shut down pretty quickly as well by, by some researchers out there. So we want to make sure that there's no taxpayer money being used illegally uh, to campaign for or against the, the marijuana legalization initiative, although we've only had uh, problems in the past uh, with the latter. Right. That makes sense. So it's probably hard to get a hold of some tax money to lobby for it. Yeah, I, I haven't really come up with a scenario in which that would be possible yet. Um, but I also think our folks uh, are smarter and, and have, uh, you know, perhaps uh, um, a stricter moral compass. Uh, sure. And we know not to not to break the law in that fashion. Right. Well, it just seems sort of, uh, you know, with everything that we've been talking about, really, in this uh, extra show of force uh, toward the in the war on drugs that we've been seeing, is it's almost like a like a last desperate attempt at, you know, kind of crushing this it's, drug war. It's a last it's like stand, a, exactly. It is absolutely the last stand of the drug war. That's what we're seeing right now. Um, there's a lot of financial interest in this war on drugs, and there's also a lot of cultural interest in the war on drugs. Definitely. You have um, some, you know, the war on drugs is just fundamentally racist. I think that's extraordinarily hard to deny when you look at the folks who started it and the explicit reasons they say they started it for. Right. Um, and then you have, you know, a system that obviously in the status quo um, praise disproportionately on black and brown, often men, um, and also people who have, who have uh, less income. Um, and then you have this kind of component of violence that people are just completely unaware of. And so Definitely. you have these, these financial interests between law enforcement and prevention folks. Um, and, you know, a lot of these substance abuse treatment folks receive uh, the majority of their customer base from marijuana. And the majority of the people there for marijuana are there because of court orders. Uh, they're not there voluntarily. They're there because a judge said, you know, okay, kid, you got caught with, you know, any amounts of marijuana. You can choose between, you know, some horrible punishments, jail time, or, or you can go to an outpatient treatment center. And you have to pay your own way at that outpatient treatment center. But it's a guaranteed uh, a guaranteed bed filled in, in that particular center. And um, you have a lot of these centers where the majority of patients are for marijuana, but the majority of them are not there voluntarily. Right. Have, Sometimes some estimates is as high as 85% of the patients in uh, rehab for marijuana are there because the court mandated that they that they go there. And so that's a huge, huge market, and it's, you know it's not going to go out quietly. Then the other is the drug war. Um, people who fought the war on drugs don't necessarily want to acknowledge that they spent the last 30 years of, of their lives making other people's lives worse and, and damaging society. Um, that's a really hard thing to swallow, but but that's what the war on drugs did, and that's what those who who uh, carried out and fought the war on drugs. They made society worse. Um, so that's a really hard thing to swallow for personal reasons, but also for uh, financial reasons. You know, the drug task forces alone get four or five million dollars a year, and that's not even counting what local police get drugs, county sheriffs, city police. Uh, so there are massive financial interests on the part of law enforcement as well, uh, especially in, in terms of the corrections industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of prisoners who, who are there because of uh, the war on drugs. There's a lot of money being made in, in private prisons in this country, right. which is probably a whole other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Well, it's kind of crazy that all of these are <laughs> almost a whole other podcast, you know? Yeah, they really are. Uh, um, could you just give us a quick update on Jeff Mazansky? How's that? Sure. Jeff Mazansky um, is doing life without parole for marijuana. He's been in jail for just under 21 years. He's incarcerated at the Jefferson City Correctional Facility down in Jefferson. Um, and we've been working really hard recently to get him out. We raised about $10,000 over the summer with an online fundraising campaign. And right now there are some radio ads running in St. Louis and Kansas City on a number of different stations. Um, there's also a billboard up on I-70 um, about halfway between Columbia and Kansas City. Uh, and then there's also a, a couple of billboards going up in in, in, uh, in Jefferson City. Uh, there was one up a couple of months ago, and it's going back up. And the legislative session starts in January. Um, it's only a couple of mile, miles from the governor's mansion, um, and we're, we're really hopeful that the governor will grant clemency. Um, if he chooses not to, we're going to do everything we can to get the uh, all the possible incoming gubernatorial candidates, um, especially the nominees from both major parties, to commit to letting Jeff out on the first day in office, not the last day in office. Right. First day in office, um, and we really are. We're hopeful that you know, depending on who runs, we might be able to get uh, those folks to commit to, uh, to freeing Jeff when they get into office. So, the very latest, you know, the new governor in 2017 would be able to direct clemency. Uh, we're also going to keep keep lobbying the governor. Uh, call his office, email him, uh, governor.missouri.gov, uh, governor.mo.gov. Um, get in contact there. Um, his contact information is online, um, and you know, give him a call, give him an email, write him a letter. Uh, let him know that uh, that you think he should uh, let Jeff out of prison, let him spend the rest of his life with his family, and also, uh, you know, stop spending uh, $20,000 a year to keep him there. So that's about what it costs. Yeah, that is just a senseless, like, waste of money for... I mean, he was just a victim of the three strikes rule, right? Sure. So Jeff, you know, it wasn't his first offense, but all three of his offenses were non-violent marijuana offenses. Missouri had an extraordinarily strict three strikes law in the books, and we still do. It was just repealed, but the repeal won't go into effect until 2017. Um, and you know, this, you know, most states a three strikes law um, applies to like acts of violence and, and serious crimes. In Missouri, drug felonies were sufficient to trigger the three strikes law, and so uh, 35 grams or more of, of marijuana is a felony. Um, and Jeff had three felony convictions for for marijuana. Um, none of them were, were massive amounts. I think at most he had a couple of pounds in, in one of the, the three cases. Um, and, you know, yeah, that's that's enough to trigger the three strikes law in Missouri, or at least it will be until 2017. The law that put Jeff away will actually, uh, was just repealed this, this last legislative session a few months ago by our legislators, but Governor Nixon uh, even let that law go into effect, but still hasn't, hasn't let Jeff out of time. So do you see a lot of uh, signs of promise of Nixon uh, actually granting clemency at all? I mean, you know, part of Governor Nixon's uh, MO is, is secrecy. He really doesn't let anybody know what he's planning or what he's doing, so we have no idea what he's going to do. He could come out on Christmas and say, you know, Jeff, go home to your family, or he could never say another word about Jeff. He's given us no indication what he's going to do, and he's had this petition in front of him for about a year now. Uh, we, are, we are optimistic for other reasons, but not necessarily um, that Governor Nixon will let him out. We think that the odds are the next governor letting him out are, are, are quite high. We also think the odds of a, an expungement bill passing through the legislature, uh, meeting a bill that would say, hey, let's save money by letting these nonviolent folks out of prison. Sure. Uh, that's not impossible. Um, but also, you know, really, I, I would put most of our, of our hope on the 2016 Show Me Cannabis Initiative, which legalizes and regulates cannabis in Missouri, uh, but also uh, expunges the offenses of nonviolent marijuana offenders and would let Jeff out of prison, as well as uh, a number of other marijuana-only convicts who are doing jail time, prison time for, for marijuana. Yeah, that would be 
Excellent change. For sure. Um, so, Lauren, did you have any other questions today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, glad that you joined yeah. us, Aaron. Uh, where can people follow along? I know that you have like a research blog, correct? Sure. So, folks can check out all of the research on narcotics enforcement in Missouri at showmecannabis.com slash research. Follow me on Twitter at Malin Aaron, M-A-L-I-N-A-A-R-O-N. Right on. And uh, for the folks that are listening, we'll be back next Friday, and we'll be back every Friday. Uh, if you have any questions for us or comments about the show, feel free to shoot an email off to Spencer at bullafterbull.com, uh, or if you have uh, any suggestions or requests for guests. Uh, and also, I'm going to leave you with the uh, Crypto Christmas commercial. Join Crypto Christmas. It's, it's really easy. All I'm asking is for people to go out and somehow obtain a cryptocurrency. Uh, go out there, learn about one, and uh, there are ways of getting crypto for free uh, if you're really that against or find it difficult to purchase any on, on any of the markets. Uh, there's ways of getting it for free, so just uh, you know that you know that one crypto nerd. So ask them for some. They will be delighted to let you in. So, uh, Aaron, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, for all you listening, thanks for tuning in. May your bulls burn ever brighter. Oh, this is your thing. I got this. Oh, that's very cool. Buy some Dogecoin or Bitcoin and see what you can see. Yeah, I'm playing this uh, on all the shows until Christmas. Just, uh, just to see if we can get people who have never tried it to try it. And then, uh, I have like donation links to the show too. So, like, do you want, you, would you run the Jeffrey Zansky app? Sure, absolutely. We have that app. We have folks. We have a bunch of ads. I don't know how many people actually want to like. I would run at least one show me ad during my afternoon. We have one about letting Jeff out. We have just like a generic, you know, legalized marijuana. Or find out how you can see the one is really good to see reports. And then um, the other really good one is Abby Rose. Yeah, yeah. She recorded a medical lab at all. Right on. Yeah. I would say distracted by the dogs. I know. I keep them like, oh my gosh, you're going to have those puppies while we're recording. I don't really... She's like going into the closet and shit. Yeah. I was like, God. I don't have any uh, press...